welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. The more you listen, the faster that move is. Product management and innovation is about creating value for customers by solving a problem that they have, a real problem. And we accomplish this through a tangible product or an intangible service. I often just refer to that as a product in general, tangible or intangible service. And done correctly, we have a proper product market fit. That's a product that satisfies the needs of a specific market, a group of customers, a group of consumers. Finding the correct product market fit is the tricky part. It's also the topic of my guest's book titled The Lean Product Playbook, How to Innovate with Minimum Viable Products and Rapid Customer Feedback. The author is Dan Olson, an entrepreneur, consultant, and lean product expert. Dan has worked with a range of businesses from small early-stage startups to large public companies on a wide variety of web and mobile products. Prior to consulting, Dan worked at Intuit, where he led the Quicken product team to record sales and profit. You'll find our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 179. I think you'll enjoy this interview. Thanks for listening. Dan, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Chad, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. So I am very excited to hear more about your book. It is called The Lean Product Playbook, and I particularly like the subtitle, How to Innovate with Minimum Viable Products and Rapid Customer Feedback. And you go through the steps in the book of, a, of achieving, you know, this product market fit we talk about, right? Getting the right product in the right people's hands to solve a real problem for them that creates value and the steps involved in that. So can you give us an overview of that process? And then we'll dive into the steps a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. So basically my book is a guide on how to achieve product market fit and product market fit is kind of a buzzword that's out there. And there's, there wasn't a lot of guidance on how to actually achieve it. And mm-hmm. so um, I created a framework called the Product Market Fit Pyramid, and from that, I created the Lean Product Process, which basically walks through the pyramid. So, the the pyramid and the process all starts um, with the market, mm-hmm. which is so it's a five layer pyramid. The bottom two layers of the market, and it all starts the bottom layer of the pyramid is target customer, like whose life we're we trying to make better, who we're we trying to create value for, and then the next level up is for that customer, what are their underserved needs. And so the idea is like a real pyramid, you know, each layer should build on top of the ones beneath it. But those two layers are the market layers. And um, you don't really control those. You can decide which ones you want to go after. Right. What you control are the top three layers, which are the product layers. And that starts with, and it builds on top of the market layers. The bottom one is uh, the value proposition, which is, you know, which customer benefits are we going to actually claim our product, you know, delivers on. And secondly, and more importantly, how are we going to do so in a way that's better or different than the competition that's out there? And the next layer up from that is um, feature set, which is, okay, great. Given that we want to provide these customer benefits, what's the functionality that we need to build in our product to convey those benefits? And then the final layer is user experience. It's on top of feature set, which is what's the user experience that's going to bring that um, functionality to life that the user actually interacts with. And so that's the product market fit pyramid, which has five layers. And the lean product process, you just work your way from the bottom up to the top. And then there's a sixth step, which is once you have a user experience defined, um, either as a prototype or as a live product. And by the way, I'm a big fan of testing these uh, hypotheses uh, with prototypes and, and with tools like InVision 
makes it really easy to do this. But anyway, when you have your prototype or your live product, then there's a sixth step, which is you close the loop between the top of the pyramid and the bottom, and you go out and you test with customers. And you see, that's how you see where you're at with product market fit. So, so those are the six steps of the process of the lean product process. And I suspect there's some experiments and testing that goes along the way too. Definitely. Yeah. It's meant to be iterative. Like, you know, we're going to take, you know, there's dependency. And just to be really clear, the idea is if you get your target customer right enough, and if you get their underserved needs right enough, and if you get your value prop right enough, and if you get your feature set right enough, and if you get your UX design right enough, then you've got product market fit. So obviously starting off, they're not all going to be right enough. And we're going to have to learn and iterate, basically. So I also took to go along with this, have a loop, an iteration loop, which is hypothesize, uh, design, hmm. test, learn. And the idea is we're forming hypotheses. Another way to think about the, the pyramid is it's a way to um, a template for formulating your key hypotheses about how you're going to achieve product market fit. Mm-hmm. And then we design ways to test those hypotheses. We test them. We learn from those tests with customers. And then we revise our hypotheses and go through the iteration loop again. Okay. So as the title would imply, the Lean Product Playbook, this does fit well into Eric Reese's Lean Startup book. And then Ash Mariah wrote the second one in that series on running lean mm-hmm. and, and how to you know, kind of scale up through product market fit. And these steps sound like the practical applications of this knowledge to actually put it into practice. And how do you really achieve this? So I like the, the it's like a five-layer cake here, right? Um, That's right. I, I think packaging it as the cake process would make this just sound so much more appealing. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the feedback, I mean, that's, if you look on Amazon, there are a lot of, there's like over, there's like 125 reviews. The most common thread is that people love that it's pragmatic and yeah. it like gives you steps to follow. And that's why it's called the playbook. And mm-hmm. what happens a lot of times people say it's a great book to read after the lean startup because lean startup gets you all excited right. and motivated and you understand the high level concepts. But a lot of times people, when they go back to their um, office and their teams after reading it, they're not exactly sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And after, after working on so many different products with so many different teams, I found it, I was able to abstract this process out that obviously the details are going to change depending on what your product are, but these same criteria need to apply to achieve product market fit. Excellent. So it's interesting. Eric Reese wrote the original book really to get people excited, as you just said, right? Yeah. And to start a consulting business with companies that was, you know, that got people excited. This really gives the tools and the steps for doing the work. And hopefully you're still providing consulting opportunities to help companies with the details, you know. Get this Definitely. Done. Yeah. I mean, as well, I mean, I've been consulting, I've been doing um, product management and innovation consulting for nine years now. Yep. And this all frankly emerged from starting to speak and give talks in 2007. And mm-hmm. I would give talks on what, what I knew and my practices. And then I'd get all these questions. And so the, the talks and content iterated over time. And I was given yeah. a workshop one time, and that's when one time I had a really great class that was super inquisitive. And they were like, no, no, but what's next? And what, what's the next step? And then what? And so on the whiteboard, I was just like riffing and writing out the steps. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I can make this into a process. It was like, you know, it kind of came together over time. Yeah. And that's the great value. You hear the same questions come up, you figure yeah. out how to make this into a process. Lots of people can understand. And that process, I want to dive into a bit. And I know when we talked earlier, you have an example you can kind of walk us through, which I think is a great yeah. way to help us figure out the process. So why don't you introduce us to that example and tell sure. us how you find the customer, do that target customer's part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the improvements I made as I was talking about this process is I realized that 
there was a case study I could share. And when I started sharing it, people really found it valuable to see the end-to-end application in a case study. So the case study is actually called marketingreport.com. And I cover it in a chapter in the book um, where for one of my clients, they had an existing product, but they had an idea for a new product and they had very limited dev resources. Hmm. And so the CEO, I mainly work with the CEO and his, and his head of marketing. And they said, hey, we want to explore this idea and try to test it out and see if there's some some market opportunity there, but we can't use any dev resources. So I was super excited because then we got to use prototypes and I partnered with the visual designer and we created that. So um, the general idea was, um, you know, when we come home uh, to our house uh, and we go to our mailbox, there's inevitably direct mail or junk mail. Direct mail is a nice way of saying junk mail. So there's junk mail there. And, uh, and say like I come home and I get a, a, a coupon for cat litter. It's like, why did I get a coupon for cat litter? Well, because somewhere in some cloud marketing database, uh, there's some data that says Dan Olson has a cat. Mm-hmm. And I may or may not have a cat. So the idea was to kind of provide transparency and empower people. And it was probably best exp- into why they're getting the marketing mail that they're getting and potentially improve it. The, and it was very analogous to the credit industry. So if you, not today, today we have a lot of transparency in your credit. You can get credit reports and scores and alerts and monitoring. But, you know, a long time ago, you would apply for a loan or credit card. You put in your social security number, it would go off into a black box and you'd get back a, yep, you're approved or no, you're declined. It's like, well, why would I get declined or approved? Well, because again, there's some secret database you don't know about tracking your credit worthiness. So that was the idea. Um, as far as target customers, jump in the first step to determine your target customers. This was obviously a broad B2C consumer offering, but to be more specific, it would be like, hey, people in the US that receive junk mail which unfortunately is a high percentage of people. So that was as far. And that's the thing when you're starting, it's okay to have a tentative, you know, a rough high level hypothesis. And then sure. as you get into it, you can kind of revise it. I, I, I like the peeling the onion metaphor. So mm-hmm. that was our initial assumption is okay. It's people that uh, receive junk mail. That was step one, basically. Uh, uh, and and uh, we knew we we're going to be talking to people and we could refine it after we talked to people. Okay. And that brings up a pretty wide audience, doesn't it? Because a lot of us have mailboxes or box or something to get junk mail in. That's right. Okay. So we have a target customer. So somehow we stumbled across the problem before that, right? You came up with this marketing report concept, working Mm -hmm. with one of your existing customers. Then you thought, okay, who has this problem? We define our target customer. Yeah. Now you said the next layer up is the, those unmet or underserved needs. That's right. Yeah. And so this is one, I mean, an important thing here, and this is kind of where the most critical part happens. And there's an important thing here, which I talk about a lot, which is problem space versus solution space. When you want to focus on needs, um, you got to think in the problem space. And many, because we live in the solution space, um, it's hard for a lot of people and product teams to abstract out the problem. Let me explain real quick. Problem is basically like problem space is what is the customer benefit or need we're trying to address? Like how are we trying to create value for a user? Um, so if I wanted to create a way, uh, say to make it easier for people to share photos with their friends, that statement would be in the problem space. The solution space in contrast is a specific implementation or design intended to address that need. So if the next thing I said is, yeah, and I coded this great iOS app last month, that does that, that makes it easy to share photos with your friends. That app would be in the, in the solution space. Mm-hmm. Or if one of my designer friends created some, a set of mock-ups, that would be in the solution space. So, uh, and what happens is too many product teams just go barreling right into the solution space and start building something or designing something without really getting clear on what's the problem. So, and um, just to underscore that point, yeah. um, as an engineer, somehow I think I'm wired to do that, right? Just barrel right. through the problem. Yeah. And I know if we take the time to 
try to broaden our framing of the problem, mm-hmm. we come up with much better solutions. Definitely. And solutions are probably more applicable and provide more value yeah. to, to more people. Yeah. And, and the reality, you know, what you want to have is, and I, you know, I, I've been coding since I was 10. And again, we all live in the solution space. Engineers are, their job is to create real world <laughs> you know, products in the mm-hmm. solution space. Designers too, they need to live in it too. Um, so, you know, I think that product managers, that's one of the main jobs, I think, is to clarify the solution to the problem space and, and designers to a certain extent. And designers, in a way, they help us explore the solution space and bridge and, you know, bridge between them. Um, and you want to have tight mapping, basically. The idea is if you're proposing a solution idea, you want to be able to map it back and get really clear that, yeah, we're confident it's going to address these problems. So, yeah, so that, and, and, and if you ever, and, and this happens at a micro level too, like when you're, you know, in doing your tickets for Jira or something, it may say like, you know, add a dropdown. Mm-hmm. Well, is a dropdown a solution or a problem? It's a solution. So one way to get it, a, a technique or a trick to get at the underlying motivation or problem is why? Well, why do we need a dropdown? Oh, well, the user needs a way to specify their destination. Okay, well, let's write it that way. Let's right. say this uh, provide a way for the user to specify the destination. Maybe a drop down is the best. Maybe it's maybe some other way that's better. Yep, it's a good example. Yeah. So, in addressing these underserved needs, we need to explore the problem space, frame it mm-hmm. properly. That leads us to the solution space. Yeah. How do we actually explore the problem space? How, how do we get the underserved or unmet needs? Yeah, so it's a good question. So, basically, you know, one is um, thinking through a problem space lens. And this is actually a fun part. Once you have, you're clear on the context, mm-hmm. oh, you need some context, like the market context. Of like, hey, we want to um, we want to make people's lives better when it comes to junk mail. Like that's enough of a context that now as a team you can have fun and just brainstorm, divergent thinking, no judgment. What are all the different things we could possibly do to improve people's lives when it comes to junk mail? Right. That's kind of step one: is divergent thinking. Don't judge. Try to think of all the things you can do. And in the book, I talk about how you can organize those thoughts because inevitably it'll be messy. The other thing about the problem space is much messier than the solution space. You. Customers don't use the same words when they talk to you about why they use products, but there is some structure and clustering you can do and, and come up with a tight problems, tighter or problem space definition. So that's step one is defining it. Then the next thing, if you follow my advice, you're going to have like dozens of potential benefits you can provide. Mm-hmm. We can't possibly do them all. And so what you want to do is prioritize them. And um, in the book, I have an importance versus satisfaction framework that helps prioritize, which is basically how important is this need, you know, low, medium, high. And how satisfied are you with how it's being met today? And kind of long story short, you want to identify the needs that have the highest importance and the lowest satisfaction because those, that's, those are the most underserved. If it's high satisfaction, then people are pretty happy with how it is today. So you kind of run it through that filter. Um, in the marketingreport.com, what we brainstormed, the, 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 the main benefit was kind of uh, – there's also a template, sorry, about like the best way to state these, which is – like, um, this was like, learn why this was learn why I get the junk mail that I get. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, and it always, a, a good problem statement starts with a verb because it's actually doing something to provide value for the user. So learn why I get the junk mail I get. Um, and it's always written from the customer's perspective. So that was the core idea. Learn why I get the junk mail that I get. And that's as, as, uh, precisely as we defined it at this step. Now that was a core idea. Everybody agreed on one of the executives also wanted to explore, you know, um, uh, help me save money with relevant offers. Mm-hmm. All right. Like, okay. Hey, maybe I don't have a cat, but I have a dog. Can I just raise my hand and say, Hey, please send me dog food coupons. Right. That would be that one. He had another one, which was, um, help me compare myself, my spending habits to others. 
where he thought a hypothesis, hey, maybe people want to compare that. And then the third one uh, was just social networking, hmm. which again is not a problem, right? So that was, <laughs> like, but because it was hot at the time, it was kind of a top-down edict that, hey, let's explore social networking, right? So anyway, so that was a one exec. Now, the other exec who really cared a lot about learn why people, learn why I get the junk mail I get, but he was also interested in exploring, hey, what if you just reduce my junk mail? Hmm. What if you just reduce it? And then we brainstorm a related secondary benefit of, you know, help me be, help me save trees or be environmentally conscious because I'm kind of cutting down on all the paper. Mm -hmm. So we iterated to get to that problem space definition that had basically those uh, six components. So six needs that we were going to address. Those are the ones that we, we thought we'd explore. Okay. And I'm curious about the, like a dual value proposition in this, because you're talking about the, Ah. your initial customer here you'd find was, Shoot, I get junk mail. I don't really like all the junk mail, right? It's that end consumer. But there's also the other value proposition is the person who is marketing that wants to do a better job targeting people with offers that might actually care Mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. At what point did that come up in the description of this? It actually never came up because what happens is, here, let me explain why. Actually, the the pyramid explains why. Is That would be a whole separate pyramid where the target customer of that pyramid would Mm -hmm. be the marketer. Right. And we could, you know, and, and there might be some kind of win-win situation where you could kind of create a, a product that would appeal to both needs. Mm-hmm. But we were strictly focused on let's start with the consumer and it was going to be a consumer-based offering and the consumer was going to pay for it basically. So okay. that was the idea. But it's a good point that there could be other markets or other um, other target customers that would we could create value for. Yeah. So just like using the Lean Canvas tool to kind of scope out a product concept, anytime we change the customer there we do a new lean canvas. Same thing here. We, we would do a, yeah. a new That's why it's the five layer cake. I'm doing the yeah. five layer cake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. 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 Okay. With That's new right. customer. Okay. Yeah. So we have target customer. We've brainstormed some, some unserved needs and prioritize those. And yeah. I suspect we could do some tools in here where we might be doing short interviews with uh, potential real customers and Mm-hmm. And starting to test out, did we prioritize properly? Did we miss some some benefits mm-hmm. that they would really appreciate? You could, you could. What's interesting is we actually just hypothesized internally and mm-hmm. didn't test and test any of the assumptions till we went to the UX prototypes with the okay. users. So it's kind of cool. But you're right, you could you could do discovery interviews, you know, at mm-hmm. this point to really flesh out that. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. And next level up is value proposition. Yeah. So value proposition, and I kind of, you know, we had 
brain that kind of did a little bit of that. We had brainstormed yeah. some other benefits that we could have addressed, but we tried to basically we wanted to test these. And the other thing, um, which we'll get to kind of when we get to MVP, is that's a lot. Of, we had six benefits. Um, that's a lot of things to test in a single value proposition or single concept. So we actually split it into two, um, where both of the concepts had the core learn why I get the junk mail that I get. And then one had the money saving compare myself to others in social networking. And then the other value prop MVP was, okay, let's take the learn why I get the junk mail I get, and let's combine it with the reduced junk mail on the saved trees because it was just too big basically. Right. And, um, when you do value proposition, the competitive analysis is where competitive analysis comes in to get really clear on how you're going to be better or different. Uh, if people out there are familiar with the Kano model, I like mm-hmm. to use that tool as far as must-haves, performance benefits, and delighters. Um, in our case, there wasn't really anybody doing the reduced junk mail thing at all that we could find. So um, we thought that it would be pretty clear value proposition there. On the money-saving offers, we knew that there were some people already doing that. We actually didn't even take the time to do a detailed analysis there on how we can be better or, 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 or because we wanted to see if it even resonated with people, like mm-hmm. how much demand there was there. But, but if you were due to do it properly, you'd go back and you'd say, okay, um, we would break out the must-haves performance benefit delighters for each one. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what we basically did. And this is getting us towards a prioritized feature set we're going to put into a MVP. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. And a lot of this is alignment. And hopefully everyday innovators, I suspect a lot of you have familiarity with this already. Many people listening also are dealing with physical products and may not have worked through something like this as much. But the alignment here is, you know, we need a clear customer to focus on. So real people we're thinking about, Mm -hmm. I get mail. I don't like junk mail. Help me make this a better experience, right? Right. Um, Right. And then what is the actual problem to explore? The benefits that we could provide in solving that problem and we're getting to some point where we want to put together an MVP, and mm-hmm. now we can actually you know test uh, test our our hypotheses in more detail. So this brings us to feature set, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. You just went through a little bit. You had six original benefits you yeah. could have. You focused on two. Now we need to get this into features of the product. Yeah. Yeah, we took the six benefits and basically put four, the core one benefit plus three in one concept. Because again, this was too big for a single MVP. Would, mm-hmm. And so we took the core benefit plus the three in one MVP and, and the core benefit plus the two in the other one. Hmm. And uh, we basically, I mean, for MVP, the, the goal here is you don't want to, um, certainly if you're building, you don't want to overbuild before you have enough um, confidence you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. When you're doing prototypes, uh, you can, you know, it's, you can you can reach a little further because it doesn't cost as much to design it. So what we basically did is for the core benefit. Let me talk through the features. I've, I've, you know, this is the thing is I've talked in problem space the whole time. This marketingreport.com. I haven't talked about a feature yet, which is which is the idea. So now we say, great, if we want to like you know help people learn why they get the junk mail they get, what features should we build? Right, mm-hmm. that's how you get the tight mapping. And the features, the the main feature idea we came up there was a marketing report, which is analogous to a credit report. So it would. And it consisted of a marketing profile, which would like show you, oh, Dan has a cat, Dan's this old, Dan makes this much, Dan has a size family, all that stuff, that, the data that the marketers are using to target you. And then an innovative idea, a marketing score, um, which would basically be like a number similar to a credit score where higher was better. So those are the, those are the those three together. The marketing report consisting of those two items was the MVP feature that we thought about. Um, for the other ones, we also had to find MVP feature, basically like a page worth of functionality for each one. Like on the money saving offers, a list of categories you could opt into. 
um, for reducing junk mail, you know, a way to kind of say, I don't want to get these kind of, I don't want to get catalogs. I don't want to get mail from these kind of people, things like that. So, so we basically spec'd out that um, enough to show the functionality that would deliver that benefit in an MVP. Um, and so it ended up being, you know, about, so we had like a landing page, a homepage, uh, and then for each of the features, a single page. Um, so basically that would have been like four more pages. So six pages for one and like five pages for the other one. Okay. So th- this was a web solution, mm-hmm. MVP, to yep. bring this marketing report to life for for users. In the process of going from benefits that you know you want to address to specific features in the form of an MVP, I, mm-hmm. I like that you said, we don't want to overbuild now until we have yeah. enough confidence moving forward. Really important. It, it's hard to be relentless about those features into the MVP. And I, I've heard some practitioners that are very good at this say, yep. you know, if we're not cutting half of what we think we really needed, we're probably not doing it right, right? That they, yeah. they, they try to get it down to the bare minimum. Yeah. What is that process like for you? What, what's been sure. your experience with teams? Yeah. And that is probably the part of the process that requires the most judgment and is the most objective, just to acknowledge what you're saying. Um, I'm a little worried if you gave a team that guidance, they would just brainstorm half as many, you know, right, brainstorm right. twice as many, twice as many to get you know, more ideas in there. Yeah. Um, but, and, and that but by itself is a really good point. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. It, it's, I, I personally like to think of MVP as the minimum valuable product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes, like you said, they just cut things that don't necessarily make sense to cut or they add things that don't necessarily make sense. And we end up with something to test, but it's not necessarily valuable. Sure. No, it's okay. Well, it's funny because as an aside, like MVP, you know, so product market fit, um, there's not a lot of good guidance out there, but people don't, and there's a little bit of disagreement on what it means, but not a lot. MVP is the poster child for different people having different opinions about (laughs) a a buzzword. Uh, One thing that I loved, you know, a while back, I found a blog post where someone had used a landing page and they were excited and they wanted to share it. And like the title of their post was a landing page is an MVP. And a lot of people read it and completely disagreed and like, you know, we're flaming the guy in the comments. And so some of them, one of them wrote a, 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 an article, a landing page is not an MVP. So anyway, <laughs> you hear MVP, you hear minimum lovable product, minimum sellable product. Right. The fact that people are creating their own variants this, uh, explains that there's some confusion going on. Um, but yeah, basically uh, the MVP, the, and this is, uh, it's, it's best seen visually, but the idea is, uh, is like you take, so you take uh, the benefit that's in your value prop. Let's say, um, you know, learn why I get the junk mail that I do. And then you then you give the team permission to say, great, now we're going to take that problem. Let's brainstorm all the feature. Again, it's divergent thinking. Mm-hmm. You suspend judgment and evaluation. You say, what are all the different feature ideas and solution ideas we can think about that would deliver that benefit? And then you list them all out. And then uh, a then I like to be, you know, you want to prioritize as, at that point, we haven't ever talked about effort yet either, right? How much mm-hmm. effort it takes to build something. So this is where the ROI return on investment analysis comes to help prioritize. And then I'm also a big believer of like breaking things down further because almost always when you brainstorm stuff, a feature, it's bigger than it really needs to be. If you, you can decompose it further. And so I like to use the word feature chunks to reinforce that it's not adequate just to stop at the feature level. Like say you, were, you needed to build a mobile app one chunking mechanism would be like, okay, we're going to start with iOS or Android first. You don't need to do both, right? Mm-hmm. So platform is one way to chunk. But even within a feature, there's usually 80-20s at play where you don't need to build 100% of it to get to get most of the value, right? So, um, so then once the team has brainstormed and broken them into chunks and prioritized them, 
then you now have the, and, and you stack a rank them, right, in priority order. And so then you just go through and go, okay, how far down each stack do we need to go for each benefit? And again, that's subjective. My one piece of advice I would say, especially if you're doing a prototype, is if you're wringing your hands going, gosh, I don't know, that one feature chunk, I think it needs to be in there. It can be a very slippery slope where it's like, ah, put everything in there. Let's just mm-hmm. be safe. Let's be safe, right? But that's missing the point. So it's better to be more conservative, in my opinion, be more conservative. And then in the first round of testing, let customers complain that it's missing a key feature. That's how you get proof. Like, okay, instead of us thinking we need it, they said we need it. Because what will happen is they'll complain if it's missing. But if you've got an extra feature, they're very unlikely to go, why did you add X? I don't understand. They're just going to like ignore it, you know, if it's extra, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, uh, and, and, you know, uh, there's the whole loop of like, you know, build features. Oh, people don't like our product. Build more features. Oh, wait, they don't like our product. Oh, well, yes. the, the problem is not features. The problem is not in the solution space. Right. The problem is you don't have the good understanding of the problem. Yeah, let's just throw things up on the wall and see what sticks and yeah. you know, someone will like something. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we have the feature set taking form in the MVP. And mm-hmm. then the, the last layer of this was user experience, right? Yes, that's right. So once we agree on our feature set, so we say, okay, cool, you know, uh, for the value prop, here's the feature chunks that we think need to be in the MVP. Uh, and, in, and in my slides and in the book, there's a way to kind of show how you plan to build the chunks over time and which version they're going to be in. But so we're getting clear on which ones are we going to have. And to tie it back to the Kano model, we're going to have the must-haves at this point. And the key is to get clear on our differentiators, make sure we have some aspect of those differentiators in here so we can test it. But then you basically want to go into UX design. You know, up until this point, it's all been words. It's been words on, you know, in, in Google Docs and things like that, describing what we plan mm-hmm. to do. Now it's time to turn into a user experience. And so um, I, I, early in my product management career, right when I started into it, I, I realized how important UX design is. So I actually have a whole chapter in the book on UX design. I don't, you know, there are whole books on UX design, obviously, but I think it's important for innovators and product management people and, and the whole product team to have uh, an understanding of high level concepts to, to better partner with, with designers and so uh, one concept is just that there's increasing fidelity of prototypes. And so a workflow that I recommend is, okay, when you're going straight from your description of your feature set to UX design, let's start with some hand sketches. So they're very low fidelity, no interactivity, but you can, the team can quickly work through some examples. Then you take it up to wireframes, which are low fidelity, um, but you can work through a lot. And you know, I'm a big fan of balsamic as a tool, and you don't need to be a designer to use that. You can actually test a balsamic with customers and uh, the cool thing about wireframes, the intent of wireframes is that we're not really focused on visual design yet. You know, I have a metaphor in the book uh, where I talk about UX design as an iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg that's visible is visual design. That's how we all, that's what we all focus on. Um, but there's a lot more uh, UX layers beneath that. And so with a wireframe, you, you're not engaging on colors or images or fonts. Right. But what you can get great feedback on is, oh, wow, that's when you, you know, test a quick wireframe. Like, hey, are you crazy? Where's feature X? I can't use this without FeatureX. You get that feedback right away mm-hmm. instead of waiting to build it without FeatureX, right? So you can use wireframes. Next step up is, uh, you know, mockups, high-fidelity mockups. And they're a tool that's really helpful is InVision where you can upload them and create, you know, clickable, tappable prototypes and stories. So that's what we want to do is get to, in my opinion, a, a, a clickable, tappable, high-fidelity prototype and something like InVision. And that's what we did in this case. We actually only went probably medium fidelity. We added a designer. He put a little bit of color and design in there, but he didn't spend forever perfecting it. And so we created for those, you know, five or six pages per each of the MVP concepts, we created a little mini Envision site. 
Excellent. Uh, note on this, the, the steps we've talked through up to this point work for pretty much any product that we might think about, right? Tan- tangible, something we can touch, digital product, software. And then the, what you just went through for building that user experience focused on digital sort of products, right? So- software products and some of the tools we can use. But, but the you, general you idea could, is, yeah, yeah, the general ideas are there. And you could replace the wireframing with foam, right? That you That's kinda, what I was about to say. Like yeah. I used to work on submarine design back in the day. And we would actually build a whole prototype of the submarine out of wood. Mm-hmm. So you could physically get the layout. That was right. before the days of advanced CAD and things like that. So, yeah, I, the general idea is create a prototypical experience of your yeah. product, whatever yeah. medium that is in, right? It's right. 3D printing, foam. Um, the palm is a great example. <laughs> they just had a piece of... Yeah, you know, walk around with a, a little piece of wood and, and swap some paper out and things like that, right? Yeah, the the, the quick context there for some listeners that have no idea what the palm was, right? Was, yes. was the <laughs> early personal um, PDA, personal digital system. Digital system. Palm, Thank palm you. Palm Pilot. The Palm, palm Pilot. Pilot. And you could write on it, which was way cool. It wasn't a smartphone, but it did everything yeah. else except phone. And the guy that started that started with a block of wood that he would yep. pretend he was writing on, and he got feedback in. That was just brilliant. So lots of ways to build prototypes and get feedback from customers. Yeah, definitely. And, and another concept that they did is they, uh, they had a great concept of no more than four choices at any point in time. Yeah. So it had four buttons on it. Um, but for those of you that think Apple invented the touchscreen, on pilot <laughs> back in the day, back in had the a touchscreen, had an app store, you know. Pretty cool things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And then you, your added step here, uh, like the icing on the cake, the uh, cl- closing the loop <laughs> yeah. by testing with customers. Yep, that's right. So so we had our prototypes ready to go. Back in step one, we identified our target customers. Now we're closing the loop from the top of the pyramid to the bottom. So one thing that's really important is to make sure you're talking to the people that you targeted, right? Hmm. So what some, one mistake people do is they just go talk to anybody to get feedback on their prototypes. And that will you're going to get scattered feedback and it's going to send you in the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. uh, the technique here, you know, hopefully uh, I didn't talk about it too much, but when you're defining target customers, you have some market segmentation, some segmentation ideas, whether it's behavioral, demographic, psychographic. And now what you need to do is when you recruit your users for the sixth step, you flip those attributes around into survey questions. It's called a screener. And you say, okay, you know, do you get junk mail or not? No. Okay. Well, if you don't get junk mail, we're not going to talk to you. Right. This was pretty broad, but one thing that we did to kind of, um, on this note, on the screener, to, to get some kind of fit and, and narrow it down so it wasn't so broad, is we said, okay, for the saver concept, we called it the saver concept, the one that had learn why I get the junk mail I do, plus the money-saving offers and compare yourself to others in social networking. We call that saver. For the saver concept, we said, well, if we're targeting people that are going to want to opt in for money-saving offers, they're probably going to be the kind of people that value saving money more than other people. And if that's the case, how might we kind of just, you know, uh, identify people like that more out of the general population. And so what we brainstorm is the idea of let's use behavioral questions uh, rather than asking them attitudinal questions. So we said, Hey, if they value money, they're probably using coupons. They're probably, you know, doing these other things that um, are consistent with that attitude. Mm -hmm. And so we asked uh, five questions like, do you clip coupons? Do you have a Costco membership? Things like that. And if they said yes to three or more, then we said, okay, you qualify as a saver. Same thing on the shield side. We called the other one shield because it was, learn why I get the junk mail I get plus reduced junk mail. We said, okay, if these people are concerned about getting junk mail, they're probably kind of more privacy conscious or security conscious. So we said they probably have like antivirus software. They probably have a paper shredder. You know, they probably Mm -hmm. were blocking caller ID, things like that. So same thing. Um, And it worked out really well. It's just enough to kind of, you know, uh, make sure that people had an affinity for that. 
And then um, we ran the test and I moderated people through the Envision prototypes. And in the book and in my talks, I actually have a chart of the, of the problem space and the, and the solution and features. And then I, after I did the test, we color coded red, yellow, green. Like, um, and the test actually went, it didn't go, that, didn't go that great, to be honest with you. Like, and this is what happens the first time. Everything's so rough and you don't know enough yet. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, there were a lot of questions, a lot of concerns. Um, and, 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 you know, basically pe- people weren't like ready to go and use this product at this point, obviously. Um, so what, what did we find? We found that, um, actually the core idea of learn why I get the junk mail I do and, uh, marketing report, a marketing score, a marketing profile, it, it wasn't green. Like, it didn't have a lot of appeal with people. Hmm. Right. Um, and especially the marketing score, like, do you know what a marketing score is? I don't know what a marketing score is, right? It's just, it's this construct, right? So, uh, so that one people really did not like. And so the cool thing there is actually, um, I know, I know what it would have taken resource wise, you know, we didn't have any data, so we'd have to go, you know, uh, buy some expensive third party data license, take a lot of engineering time to develop some algorithms, take mm-hmm. a lot of time and money to educate the market on it. But guess what? Because people don't like it, we don't have to waste. That's the kind of the lean right. aspect is not wasting resources. Mm-hmm. So there was no green in the core idea. So it's like, thank goodness we tested something else. And this happens all the time, right? Uh, you go out, companies go out with one mm-hmm. idea and it doesn't resonate, but customers kind of guide them to an adjacent market opportunity. Right. Um, you know, Flickr did not start out as a photo sharing app, uh, nor did Slack. They were trying to make a game and it's actually the same guy, Stuart. So they say he's the, the richest, like uh, the worst game maker, but the richest uh, in the world because <laughs> he, he did that. So, uh, so where we found green, there was actually some green, which means, hey, there was enough appeal. And green doesn't mean, oh, my gosh, it was the same. Dump. Green means, wow, there were questions and concerns, but we think we have a good handle on the questions and concerns. And if we iterate this, there is some customer value opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Um, on the saver concept, it was money-saving offers. Again, social networking was red. It was anything that kind of doesn't have – this is what happens. If you don't have a good rationale for why you think it's going to succeed and you're not clear on the problem space, it's probably going to come back red. That's what happened with social networking. So we had money-saving offers were green with the savers. And then for the shield people, reduced junk mail was green, as was saved trees. So the good news is we found some green. There's no guarantee you're going to find green. But now we had to decide we're going to pivot to money-saving offers or we're going to pivot to reduce junk mail. And we this kind of gets back to value prop. We pivoted to reduce junk mail because, one, the company already had a product, and this, this idea was more consistent with their brand than money-saving offers. And on money-saving offers, uh, there were two issues with that. One was it would have taken a lot of time. You have to sign a lot of biz dev deals and do partnerships. And that would have just taken a lot of time and effort. It would have delayed time to market. Mm-hmm. And secondly, back to value prop, you know, we knew there were a lot of people doing money saving offers. We hadn't bothered doing the detailed competitive analysis. But when we did a high level competitive analysis, it was hard to see how we were going to be better or different. So knowing that we couldn't be better or different. And for those other reasons, we chose to pivot to marketingreport.com. And because we had just done this all with prototypes and envision, there was no heartburn about throwing it all out the window right. and starting from scratch. It's beautiful. We started with a blank canvas and said, okay, we need to pivot to reduce junk mail plus save trees. And we've got, and I took my six pages of notes from the sessions on the shield concept. And we just made sure, like dutifully made sure every we modified the design and functionality to address every question and concern. And we learned all kinds of stuff. Um, there was completely, this is what happens when you get out and talk to customers and uh, the, the other analogy I'll use is, you know, I used to work on submarines and I think it's just really important. I'll, I'll tell you why it's relevant in a second, but I think it's really important just to get out in front of companies. Like at some point, stop the internal thinking and hypothesizing and perfecting 
Right. Get in front of customers with a prototype, even if it's rough, and they will guide you. And when I was on submarines, like if you know, when you shoot a torpedo at something, you don't need to get the angle exactly right. You just kind of need to get it within, you know, 20 degrees. And then it's kind of sonar will turn on and it'll guide itself in. That's how I view kind of customer research is Mm. get out there in the general direction you think you're interested in. And the customer will tell you, actually, I don't care about that, but I like this other thing, right? And they'll guide you. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we learned there, and you always learn when you talk to customers and you peel the onion was uh, I asked people before we jumped to the prototypes, hey, uh, tell me, you know, tell me what you do with junk mail. Like, Dan, let me tell you what I do. Every day I come home from work, I go to my mailbox, I grab a stack of mail. I go straight inside my house to my paper shredder and I shred, I shred it all. I'm like, wow. And I didn't do that behavior. That's what happens when you do customer research. You Mm -hmm. realize there are different personas than you. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, how long do you shred paper? Five minutes a day. I'm like, wow, the mail comes six days a week. That's 30 minutes a week. There are 50 weeks a year. 1,500 minutes a year you're spending shredding paper. So there was a whole, back to the problem space, a whole save time benefit that we had not even hypothesized and missed and learned by talking to customers. So we added that to our value prop. And in the Mm -hmm. new mock-up, we pivoted to jumpmailfreeze.com. That was the new product. And the new homepage, we had save less time, you know, save, uh, spend less time shredding mail right on the front page. And so then all those people that were doing that, Mm -hmm. they kind of saw that and you could see them kind of nod. Other things, we found that, you know, we had reduced junk mail as the benefit statement, right? Well, we learned in talking to people, not all junk mail is the same. Some they don't mind. Some is kind of annoying. Some is really, really, really annoying. The, the, what we found was super annoying and what people hated the most was the financial-related junk mail, like pre-approved credit cards hmm. and cash advance checks. And when we asked why, it made sense. A lot of these people lived in houses where their mailboxes weren't locked. And so they were afraid someone was going to reach in, grab their cash advance checks, and like steal money from their account or defraud their account or do identity theft. So once we learned that, we put those types of mail front and center on the homepage, like stop this kind of mail, you know, and second time around, we showed people that you could see them like looking at that intently and, and getting excited, even just getting a little angry, just thinking about that possibility. Um, And then silly things too. We said, save trees, right? Mm -hmm. Multiple people said, well, how many trees are you going to save? So we actually, in the, in the new prototype, we put in save 43 trees. We just picked a number and then second time around, people like, okay, we got it. So um, and it was great. So, you know, we did the second test. We, again, because of our prototypes, just threw it out, started again to junkmailfreeze.com super fast. Um, we also learned nuances of, okay, how to exactly control which mail comes through and which mail doesn't, you know, it's like, yeah, I want you to block my catalogs. Those catalogs just clutter up my mailbox, a stick, big catalog, but my potty barn catalog, that's got to get through no matter what. So we had a little UI, you know, to do that. So we learned a lot. But there were, there were still a few questions, but there were a lot fewer questions. And, uh, and there were a lot, the magnitude of the questions was a lot right. smaller. And both times I, I, I asked people, hey, would you pay $10 a month for the service? And it's always a little iffy to ask people if they would pay because they don't actually have to bust out their wallet and pay you. But there was like a night and day difference. The first time around, nobody was, was going for it at any interest. So like, no, I would not pay for this. The second time around, what most people said was, well, I need a 30-day trial, but if your product does deliver delivers on what it says here and does this, then I would gladly pay you 10 bucks a month. Hmm. So there was like a night and day difference. And then the other cool thing, like once the tests were over, like we, we paid people for their time to come talk to us, right? So I'm like, here's your check. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was very helpful. Almost every single person after I gave them the check and the test was done asked me, so is this product live now? Can I go use this? 
I was like, no, we're still working on it. It's not quite done. They're like, uh, can I give you my email? Can you email me when this came out? So that was another kind of evidence that we had kind of improved product market fit by iterating right. in that way. Yep, you're on to something. I, I like referring to this as the icing on the cake step. Yeah. Because this is what everything else leads up to. This is where the true value for us as product managers is. It's getting those firsthand insights from the customers that we want to create something that they would actually use and, and appreciate. So yeah, really yeah. helpful. Thanks for taking us through the steps and through that example of the, the marketing report. And love to get into those details further, which will be in your book. Why don't we tell listeners how to find that while we're talking about it now? Yeah, definitely. But the best place to find stuff is my website, danolson.com. So it's dan-olson, O-L-S-E-N.com. And from there, I've got my blog posts. I've got videos, uh, you know, slides and videos of my talks. Mm-hmm. So um, if anyone's interested, you know, finds this interesting, you should definitely check out a video of my talk where you can see the slides that go along with the story. Um, that'll help bring it to life. And I've got pointers to my book there, Lean Product Playbook. It's on Amazon. It's available in hardcover, ebook, audiobook, also Chinese and Turkish. Um, and if any of your listeners are in India, there's a special paperback version for that market there and Polish entire coming out. So it's cool to see it kind of spreading around. Yeah. Um, clearly yeah. getting traction. So, yeah. so you, you must have applied the progress, the process well <laughs> in yeah. meeting needs of that people had. Yeah, I think so. Cause again, they, they, they wanted some tangible, practical advice. So that's yeah. excellent. Good. Yeah. And as listeners know, we love a good innovation quote around here. What do you have for us and why did you choose that one? Yeah, the quote that I chose is one from Albert Einstein. So Albert Einstein is uh, a hero of mine because uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I used to be an engineer and I, physics is still an area of passion of mine. But basically, you know, with no equipment <laughs> or anything, he figured out that there was, you know, some fundamental insights into the universe that we didn't know about. He just was sitting there doing thought experiments and thinking about and saying, Hey, the speed of light can't possibly be constant. And from that figured the whole thing out. Right. So he has a great quote. He has a lot of great quotes, but one of them is if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. So obviously you guys can see why it's near and dear to my heart. I'm big on problem space versus solution space. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe this. Um, that in many ways, especially with agile development, you know, not, not that obviously coding is challenging and difficult, but we can build kind of a lot of different things, you know. But if we're not building against the right problem, then we're definitely we're not going to be achieving high ROI and, and making people happy. And so I'm a big believer uh, of spending time on the problem, and you know, the frameworks in my book are meant to help people. Uh, how to think about the problem, basically, mm-hmm. right? So okay, we're going to think about a customer, and we're going to talk about needs in this certain way. And, and, and it's going to be mapped to the customer. And then for those needs, we're going to think about solutions and, and things like that. So that's why I like it. Um, just to re- encourage, remind people that you need to be spending way more time on the problem than you probably are. It is my favorite Albert Einstein quote. <laughs> and it fits really well what we were talking about, about framing the problem correctly. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. So that's a yeah. great one to keep in mind. And one more time, tell us how we can find out more about your work. Yeah, definitely. So again, my main website is uh, dan-olson.com, D-A-N-O-L-S-E-N.com. And there's one other thing I want to share with people that are in the Bay Area. I am, I'm a big believer in sharing uh, best practices. So mm-hmm. I actually run a monthly speaker series here in Silicon Valley. It's called Lean Product and Lean UX Silicon Valley. I started it four years ago. We have over 6,300 members now. And basically each month I host a world-class speaker and expert. And so past guests have been like Marty Kagan, who wrote the book Inspired. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Moore, you know, crossing the chasm, 
um, and all his great books. Ash Moria, who you mentioned running Lean. Tony Olwick, What Customers mm-hmm. Want and Jobs to Be Done. Those are some examples. And we videotape the talks and post them on our YouTube channel. So it's free to join the Meetup group. And you can learn more at meetup.com slash lean hyphen product. Um, and you'll get notifications when we have new events or we, we post videos. So, yeah. But again, everything, you can link to all that stuff from Dan Olson, dan olson.com. Excellent. And I will put the links to those resources in the show notes for this episode too. Make that easy for everyone to get to. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Chad, thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Dan at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 179. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.